Um, so a lot of y'all are familiar with Young Life. I was a, a Young Life leader at one point, and um, if you've ever been on a Young Life weekend, they have these talks laid out, and there's the, the cross talk where they really share the gospel with high schoolers, and so all the leaders meet the right before the the service where the crosstalk happens and just kind of talk about where they are and who, who they're praying for in their groups and um, just praying that the Lord would move and would, would change hearts and change lives. And so we were sitting in that room and uh, at Windy Gap and we were talking about things and this one girl who was uh, a leader with us just broke down and started weeping. And she just sat there and wept and then finally when she collected herself, she said, um, she had senior girls, and she was like, I've been walking with these girls for four years. I've been pouring myself out for four years, and I've been telling them about Jesus. I've been picking them up and going to sporting events and praying for them and loving them, and there is not a single one of these girls here that is the least bit interested in Jesus or anything spiritual, and it just, like, did her in, and, um, there was a guy there who was uh, older, and he had been on the team for a while, and he just kind of waited a minute, and then he said, hey, Ashley, I want to tell you something. Um, I was sitting here in this room, and there was a, a guy leader um, named Michael Purifoy who was crying like this and saying the same thing. I've been walking with these guys who are seniors now for four years, and none of them care at all about Jesus or care at all about really anything other than themselves, if we're honest. Um, and uh, just didn't see the fruit of his work at all. And it's like, I haven't even been here this whole time. I've been pouring myself out, turned myself inside out, and it's like I wasn't even here. And he said, but you never know what's going to happen and what the Lord's going to do because one of those guys that was causing him to pray and, and confess that is sitting here now with us, leading a group of guys, and that was me. And I just thought, man, that is so amazing to think about that, that there's so much that we, uh, we don't see, and there's so many times that we think that, that it is a total bust, it is a total failure, <laughs> and uh, we are tempted to be very, very uh, low, and we just never see what the Lord's doing, and so that's, that's kind of where we are, uh, man, we were, we were really high last week, and we're <laughs> really low as we land the plane here with Nehemiah. This is, this is the end. This is the end of the book. And if you were with us last week, chapter 12 was this, the high point of the book is the wall was completed and that meant things. That meant communion with God. It meant we could stop worrying about being attacked. It meant we could stop worrying about where our food was going to come from and we could actually go to the temple and worship. We could actually do life together. We could actually um, be in communion with this God that we were made for. And it was this beautiful scene of everyone rejoicing, and it was joy that, it was God-given joy. It was joy that was so full and so free, and it was so everyone, everywhere, and it could be heard from miles away from the city. And now we fast forward. Uh, some commentators think as, as much as 15 years later. So at some point, Nehemiah was the governor for 12 years uh, in his reform efforts here to come and build the wall and, and get people back together and back on track. So for 12 years, he was the governor. And then at some point, he goes back to the king, goes back to the royal city. And remember, that trek is, is almost like going across the United States. It's a very long trek. And so he makes his way back, and he's there for probably years, um, but maybe even as, as long as 15 years. And at some point, he comes back. And he comes back to Jerusalem. He makes that long trek again, and he wants to see what's going on. And what we just read was 
um, what he found. And what, he's go- what is going on, what he found, is uh, what is going on with us if left to our, our own devices. Um, he comes back, and after all these years of reform, after all these things that God had done, that all these memories that they had shared together, all these experiences, um, it was like he was never there, except for this big wall around the city. But other than that, it's like nothing, none of that ever happened. And what's happening here is, um, is, is what their hearts are always tending toward. If left to their own devices and floating on the cultural currents, and it's, it's what our hearts are always tending toward as well. And um, it's, it's this big word, secularization. And, and what, what it is to be secular is to have no spiritual basis. And so secularization is the process of converting something from spiritual uh, to secular use. It's separation from all spiritual concerns. And so something that we hear about in this passage is that these people were profaning the things of God. And what that means is profaning is to make common what was holy. Um, it's, it's taking what was spiritual and just emptying it of its spirituality and it becomes this common thing. And so uh, another word for this or a, a fruit of this is pragmatism. And pragmatism is dealing with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical considerations. I'm going to read that one more time because that actually sounds pretty good, right? Dealing with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical considerations. Yes. Yeah, sure. But think about what that actually means. If I say yes to this, dealing with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical considerations, that means that I am now the arbiter of truth. That means that for me to make an assessment here of what is sensible and what is realistic and what is true is now limited to my five senses and my mind and my understanding and my perspective and my ability to fit things together that are way above my pay grade. And so what happens is when I begin to trust in myself and my senses and my reasoning and we collectively begin to do that together, then that changes priorities. Then we, we naturally de-spiritualize, we empty anything of spiritual significance and it just becomes practical. What makes the most sense? And now as, as some say, we live in this disenchanted world. Um, a, lot of, a lot of authors have been, a lot of authors and thinkers have been talking about this lately, but one, uh, a man named Mike Cosper says this about disenchantment. This is an age where our sense of spiritual possibility, transcendence, and that word transcendence means the existence or experience beyond the physical level. He says that uh, we're in an age where our sense of spiritual possibility, transcendence, and the presence of God have been drained out. We have enough conviction and faith to call ourselves believers, but we are compelled to look for ways to live out a Christian life without transcendence and without the active presence of God. You can believe whatever you want as long as you don't expect it to affect your everyday experience. It is so easy, it is so easy to live like this, is it not? Because when you start to feel the pinch and things don't happen the way you hoped they would happen or you expected them to happen, then it becomes really easy to start making trades. Yeah, okay, you know what? I've been hanging on to this. Um, 
but really, let me reassess that. That's not that much value, so yeah, I'll sell that. I'll trade that for this other thing over here that's going to be this immediate benefit to me. And I start making these trades in my pragmatism where I'm the one who decides what's sens sensible and what's real and what's realistic and what's practical. And I start making a lot of bad trades. And so that's what we see in this passage that Nehemiah has found. He's come upon all these things that are horrifying to him. You know, based on where we left things some years ago when he left this place at a very high point, he comes back and it is horrific what he sees. And so we're just going to walk through this and see these people, the people of God, making these pragmatic trades. So first, the first one we run into is the high priest who's supposed to be the spiritual leader of this whole community. Um, and we see these competing oaths of allegiance. Um, Eliashib was a high priest. He was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. And he was also related to Tobiah. And if you are, um, if you've been with us this time, you've heard his name come up a few times. Tobiah the Ammonite was one of the key enemies of God and enemies of God's people who was in the surrounding area who was fighting against everything that God was trying to do in rebuilding this wall and rebuilding these people. He was actually related to him now through intermarriage. So it says that he, and then in uh, chapter 6, verse 18, it says that he and many in Judah were bound by oath to him because of intermarriages. His grandson married also uh, a daughter of Sambalot, the Horonite, who was another listed enemy of God and, and enemy of what God was trying to do in these people. And so here what happens is he makes a trade. Um, he says, I, I don't know why, I don't know what the circumstances are, but he, there's this huge storeroom where they're supposed to store all of these offerings for God um, in the temple courts. And what the high priest does, who's supposed to be guarding the worship of God, supposed to be guarding the communion between God and God's people, actually says, you know what, let's just move all this stuff out. Uh, I'm sure we'll find another place for it. And we're going to give this room to this man who apparently he owes something or feels uh, a stronger allegiance to him than to his calling to lead the people in worship. And so he, this man comes and lives in this room. He has his own personal furniture in the house of God in this holy place where this is only supposed to be for the worship of God's people for the house of God. And you see um, the trade that Eliashib made. There was something that happened in his heart before he, this played out physically in the world. There's, there's a trade that happened in here. It was like, you know what? It's been a lot of years since that moment that we were all marching around the wall and singing and raising our hands. Um, I'm not really getting a lot from this anymore. And so uh, what, whatever reason we have, um, it just sounded better to him. It sounded like it made more sense to give this man this holy place in God's temple. And so, you know, we do that. It's, it's this war of allegiances to our family, our, our work, our social circles. Is yeah, yeah, well, you know, my first allegiance is to my work above um, to the Lord and what he's calling me to, or my first allegiance is to my family that's crazy. Um, and it's, yeah, the things that you say, Lord, about healthy boundaries and about um, how I'm supposed to be using my time and money and all that stuff, um, that's great in theory. But in practice, like, you don't have to actually, like, navigate relationships with these people, and so I'm just going to do whatever makes them happy. Or with work, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to disappoint them because that's actually my God. That's where my livelihood comes from. That's where my being okay 
comes from. And so if there's ever a trade that has to be made, um, that's, that's the direction that trade's going to flow. And then the next part um, is money. Tithes were being withheld, and tithes were what made worship possible. Um, this money was being paid for the offerings, and this money was being paid for the singers and the priests and those who were called and specially gifted to lead God's people in worship. This was to say, hey, you don't have to stop and, and go work your fields or do other things um, because you're being your life, your livelihood is being cared for by the community, so you can devote all of your time to the ministry of the people of God. You can devote all of your time to worship. You singers, you Levites, you can be um, in prayer, and you can be writing new songs, and you can be putting all of your creative efforts and energies to strengthening this communion between God and his people. But what started to happen as we got further and further away from this high point of chapter 12 is people are like, yeah, you know what? I know, I know we're supposed to give this much, um, but I'm actually, it's, it's been kind of a, a low month, and so I'm just going to give less. Um, because really, um, let's be honest, like, are we going to miss one of the singers? <laughs> like, are we going to miss one of the priests? I think we'll be okay. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to make sure that I still have everything that I want for my little life, um, and I'm going to neglect the community. And what happens, you know, with this giving money, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Uh, when we give, when God calls us to give, um, God, God is not a beggar. God is not a drug addict who's asking for just like a little more money. Like, can you just give me a little more? Um, God is sovereign Lord and ruler over all of the earth and everything that fills it. Um, so tithing and giving to the worship and to the work of his kingdom is not about him needing it. It's about us. He's saying, look, y'all are trying to get away from this, but this is actually for you. This is for your heart. This is for your soul because something happens. It's a discipline. It's a rhythm. Um, when I open my hand and give you the thing that I think makes life work, what I'm saying is I actually believe that I have a God and Father in heaven who will take care of me. I don't need to white knuckle all of this money. I don't need to become like Ebenezer Scrooge and just sit and hoard and count my money. I'm actually free to let it go and say, Lord, this is me in a physical, tangible way entrusting myself to you. And I believe that you will keep your promises to me and that I will not go hungry. And it's also recognizing that all, like he is the fountain of all goodness. He's the fountain of every good thing that comes into my life. It comes from him. It doesn't come from me making it happen. It comes from him because he is good and he is abundant, and he loves me, and he's full of grace, and full of mercy, and full of love. But you see the, the trade that's being made in the hearts of the people. And then, and then we get to the Sabbath, this time and efficiency, um, trading holy things for time and efficiency. The Sabbath was profaned. Um, it was, this was another discipline, another liturgy. God doesn't need us um, to make him feel better about himself, to devote a day to him. This is for us. He's saying, look, you, you are not a machine. You are a human being. And I've made you a free human being. And I want, you, I want to protect that in you because the world is going to be trying to deform you and misshape you into believing that you're just an efficiency cog in this big wheel. But you're not. You're not a slave. And so I'm, I'm commanding you. I'm commanding you because if I don't, you won't do it. <laughs> And even when I do command you, you don't do it. But I'm commanding you to set aside a day to be human. 
to stop working, to put it down to, again, another discipline to say, my livelihood doesn't come from me working. When I stop working, the world doesn't fall apart. I don't go hungry. I actually need to stop and get out of this rhythm and get into another rhythm where I am just seeping and, and drowning myself in the depths of God's love for me. What is true, what is real about who he is and what he says about me and what he says about his love for me and that is gonna transform the other six days of the week. But here's the, I mean, the crazy thing is um, we don't wanna be fully human. There's something wrong in us. We wanna make that trade. We wanna say, no, I don't want a day to set aside and be still and think and reflect and enjoy relationships with people. I wanna work. I want to be efficient. I want to be productive. I want to be a slave. And that's what these people were doing because they were just seeing the little ticker. If I put in this much more time, I get this much more money, and I'm just addicted. And then the last one here is uh, also a very powerful one that I think translates to us too is um, the trades being made in our sexuality and relationships and marriage and parenting, all of this ball of things together. Um, these people were intermarrying people from other nations and other cultures. And what, what he's referencing here is Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 5 says that nobody who is, who is from these particular cultures is ever to be allowed in the people of God. And I just want to stop here and rightly interpret this for us. The problem is not that these people were of another race or another nationality. That's not the problem. That's not what's going on here. And when this, when this um, prohibition was made in Deuteronomy 23, what, what we should read into that is um, no one who is from another culture who is not willing to submit to the Lord should ever be allowed in this congregation. So it's like anyone is welcome who comes and puts the yoke of the Lord on themselves and says, I want to be one of the people of God. And if you, and if you doubt that or don't know that that's true, think about Ruth. Um, Ruth was a Moabite. She was of Moab, where it says, like, no one who is a Moab should ever be a part of God's worshiping people. But Ruth was a part of God's worshiping people. He, he accepted her. He loved her. And she was actually in the line of Jesus, our Savior. And Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. So the issue is not race and nationality. The issue is worship and a willingness to submit to the Lord. And what's happening is these men, I don't know if women were doing it too, I don't know what that looked like, but we know that these men were marrying women from other uh, nationalities, other surrounding nations um, who could care less about the things of God. And, and evidenced by their decisions, they actually also, these men could care less about the things of God. They just wanted to do what felt good. And they just wanted to be with whoever they felt like being with. And so what happened was they got together, they married these women. These women never became a part of the worshiping community. And when they had children, these children never learned about the things of God. They never even learned the language. So the, the word of God was not even accessible to them. And these men didn't care. They're like, I don't care. I'm doing what I feel like, and that's all I care about. And so they're building these lives where the next generation is just, like, no, no one is teaching these children how to worship the Lord or, or about the things of the Lord or who God is or who they are, and, and the people of God just don't even care. 
And, and Nehemiah says, I mean, look at Solomon. Like, you think you're above this? Like, this thing always runs in one direction. When, when there's a relationship and somebody doesn't care about Jesus um, and the other person does, it, it only really goes in one direction. <laughs> it goes downhill. And he says, you doubt me? Look at Solomon. He was the wisest man to ever live. He was beloved by God, had a deep relationship with God, and things did not go well for him when he just decided to marry whoever he wanted to. So again, it's this very, and this may be the, the strongest of all. This is this very felt, like, pragmatic trade that's being made. My sexual gratification, my emotional gratification, my cure to feeling lonely is my God. That's what's driving me, and I will satisfy it at any cost. I don't care what God says. Because if God really loved me, he would want this for me. It's at the top of my Christmas list. So if he, I'll know he really loves me if he's cool with this. But Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about, is this pragmatic decisions and deal-making that we've been talking about. He said, we've got this thing in us that is broken, and if left to our own devices, we are always going to veer away from God. We're going to veer into making spiritual things secular, assigning very little value to the things of God and making these trades that are bankrupting our souls. And so he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. And so that's, that's what we need. Um, we need Jesus to come and help and heal us through his word, through his spirit, through his people. Um, we are always in need of waking up to spiritual realities because of the, the tendencies that we all have in our hearts. We need to be woken up to the reality of eternity, to our souls, to the lover of our souls. Um, and we look at what Nehemiah does as an agent of this reform, and it's pretty wild. Um, he's throwing out furniture. He's uh, cleansing the temple and moving good furniture back in. He's appointing reliable men to be over the tithes. He's closing the city gates on the Sabbath, posting guards to make sure nobody can get in. And then uh, he threatens the, the people who would still try to sell outside of the gates and says, if you do this again, I'm going to come lay hands on you. And he must have been intimidating because it said they never did that again. Um, and then with these intermarriages, he confronts the people, he curses these men, and he beats them and pulls out their hair. And so you read this, and it's wild, and you're like, is all of this right? Is, like, does, is this in the word of God because we're supposed to be doing this? And I think the answer is probably no. Like, this, like, because the Lord is telling us everything that happened in this chapter, it doesn't mean that this is normative for us. We don't all need to start pulling each other's hair out. But I do want to stop and just acknowledge something here, um, that, that there, there is something for us in, like, the underlying heart of what's happening. You know, instead of Jesus, um, we had an episode of Jesus where he's throwing, uh, turning over the tables in the temple and it says, the zeal for your house will consume me. Like Jesus in that moment was saying, um, this matters so much that I'm not afraid to make a scene. And so then, then I stop and think, okay, what, if I were going off the rails, um, how would I want my friends to respond to me? And, and honestly, I would hope they would try a little harder than just say, hey man, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like, no, it is a good idea. Okay, great, have fun. 
I mean, I would want somebody to come after me, right? Say, hey, look, you're blind right now. You are not sober. You are not thinking well, and I'm taking you home. I'm taking you somewhere good. I'm not leaving you like this. Jesus asked that question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And so just to stop and ask, do you have anyone in your life who can say no to you? Do you have anyone in your life who can back you down? You say, no, I'm going to do this, and, and somebody says, no, you are not. Do you have anyone in your life like that? Because if you don't, it has a very dangerous place to be. And then the flip question is, are you that person for somebody else? Or are you willing to be that person for somebody else? Do you value and love your people, your friends, this body of people enough to say, hey, um, I'm going to lovingly confront you right now. This is not okay. I'm not going to sit back and watch this happen. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what does it look like to bring back a sinner from their wandering? I don't know. It's probably different in every situation, but I, I know there's this underlying heart thing of like, I care deeply for you. My brother, my sister, I'm not going to sit back and watch you be led off astray by the enemy who wants to destroy your soul. And what does that look like? How, how far do we push? How loud do we get? I don't know. I can't answer that question. But you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and as you bring this to him, he will answer that question for you. So we've got this thing in us. This, we're always tending toward this secularizing and pragmatizing and I don't know if pragmatizing is a word. Um, and we, we need always Jesus to come to us through his means of grace, through his people, through his word, um, through his Holy Spirit to reform us, to, to re-enchant our world, to remind us of what is true, that all that we see is not all that there is. But now we're going to turn the corner and, and think of when we're the ones who are trying to do the reforming. When we are following Jesus into doing reforming like Nehemiah is in this passage. Where do we go when we are following Jesus into the fray day after day and it's like we weren't even there? When all of our efforts to build organizations, build people, build dreams, develop people, share Jesus with others, parent our kids seems to be a total waste. Where do we go in that? And the thing that strikes me the most about this passage is Nehemiah's crying out, remember me. Remember me, God. For my good, please. Like, think about all of the pain that's, that's in those words. Think about all the years that he gave up his own comfort. And he was just in it. He had his sleeves rolled up. They were f just fighting and fighting enemies within, fighting enemies without, just day to day, it was just all consumed by this thing that God had put on his heart to do. And he's seen literally his life's work amount to what looks like nothing. He came back and it was all gone. 
And he's just crying out, remember me, please. Like, and translate that, please tell me that this is not all for nothing. Please tell me that it mattered that I was here for 12 years giving everything I had to this. Please tell me that you're not just going to lump me in with everybody else here and just say, man, be gone with all of you. Please, please tell me that I can still hope for something here. And so a question is, how do you think God looked at Nehemiah in this? And how do you think God looks at you when you pray those kind of prayers? You know, even, even here, even in his moment of desperation, even seeing it all go down, at the end of our passage, he says, and, and thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. And I have to just say, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You did on a, a very shallow surface level. But Nehemiah, you cannot do that. That is way above your pay grade. Jeremiah 17, 19 says, the heart is desperately sick and wicked. You did not cleanse them from their own hearts. And we cannot do that either. And so the good news is we are called to be faithful, not successful. You and I, I know I do, I worry so much with things that God has never asked me to worry about. I just, I turn myself inside out and fret and I'm anxious over the results of things that I'm a part of and doing, like this church. Um, and it's just, it's this needless anguish because the Lord's like, bro, you, you don't have the capacity to do the things that you're worried about. When you're talking about heart transformation, we're talking about life change, that's way above your pay grade. I'm just asking you to be faithful. And if I would just live in that, the amount of peace would be a very different story. Um, and it made me think, uh, made me think, you know, I can actually rest in my perceived failures because what I'm actually resting in is Jesus' perceived failure. You know, if you look at Jesus' life, his ministry on earth, it was awful, right? And in worldly standards, it was a total bust. He had amassed 12 followers and, and more than that at some point, but then it got <laughs> shrunk back down to 12. One of those betrayed him and then the rest ran away. And he, was di he died the most shameful death that you could imagine. And there weren't many people there watching him die or fighting to get him down off the cross. But what his death accomplished is everything. What, what everyone in the watching world felt like was a total failure was the greatest success in the human history because it undid what no one else or no thing else could undo, which was the curse and the death and decay of humanity it was undone on the cross. And so like, like the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, who his whole life was a failure, he was a, a criminal being murdered or being, being condemned for a, a life that had amounted to nothing good, just looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, yeah, like, I'll do better than that. I'll remember you and you'll be there with me. Because that's all he's asking is just trust in me, just believe in me. I'm not asking for results because I actually, I'll take care of the results. 
We don't need to worry about Jesus forgetting about us. Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Of course not. But even these may forget. Even if a mother forgets a nursing infant, I will not forget you because I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jesus is not threatened by the book of Nehemiah ending with chapter 13. Think about that. This book could have ended with chapter 12, but the Lord saw fit to end in chapter 13 to say, yes, um, you need a savior. Look at this mess, and a savior is coming. And so guess what? He's not afraid or threatened to end your life in a chapter 13 or mine. We are. I'm threatened by that, but he's not. And the reason is because it's not the end. Um, I can't actually see or know the things that I think I can see or know. And so Galatians 6, 9 says this, let us, grow, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that's why secularization and pragmatism is for fools. It's a bad bet because we cannot see everything that's coming. And he is asking us to just trust him that what he did was effective, what he did was all-sufficient, and what he is doing will come to pass even though we cannot see it all now. So in our chapter 13s, we can rest in his love for us and we can continue day after day after day to be faithful and take joy in that faithfulness because he is doing something in us and doing something in his world even when we can't see it. Lord, we, uh, some of us are, are very, very acutely aware of the truth of what we've been talking about. And there are relationships, there are endeavors, there are um, just patterns of sin. Lord, there, we are just um, plagued by weakness and foolishness and sin and, and plagued by the weakness and foolishness and sin of others and we just have so many moments where we just raise our hands and say, what will come of this? Will anything good come of this? Will anything good come of my life? And thank you, Jesus, that the answer is yes. It is yes, not because of us, but because of you. It's yes because of what you have done, who you are, and what you are doing now, and what you will finally complete one day in the future when you return. And so, Lord, would you protect us from our own pride? Would you protect us from our own um, unbelief? Would you protect us from the schemes of the enemy and would you give us the strength we need to continue to follow you in trusting ourselves to our Savior and watching for you to reveal what we can't see yet but what we know is coming. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.